Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We've been talking about buttons and knobs recently, and you also wrote an article for DP Review. Uh, Make sure we put that in the show notes. Good idea. And that kind of got us thinking about different ways to shoot, because I think a lot of that was really talking about the physical aspect of using buttons and knobs, but it didn't really address when do you shoot manual? When do you want to shoot full auto? Should you ever shoot full auto? Or is that sort of the, the I'm a beginning photographer and I just bought my $2,000 camera and I don't know how to use it. So I'm just going to put it on auto all the time. And also exactly what I just said kind of reveals one of those, those crazy photographer biases, you know, it's like, oh, well, if you're going to be a quote unquote real photographer, then you're going to shoot in manual all the time and you're going to ignore all your automatic settings that company put a lot of research and development into. And so I think we just wanted to revisit this topic of the different ways of shooting, because obviously there are times for each of those and there are situations where one works better than the other. But how do you know? Like, do you just fumble through it like I think so many of us do? Well, I think it's important to point out that this photographer's bullying of new photographers for not shooting manual is just ridiculous. As you say, you've got a $2,000 camera. It's a computer with a lens. There's no reason why you should not take advantage of it. And even if you're shooting manual, you're still taking advantage of it. Maybe you're focusing manually, but maybe you're still using face recognition and you're using the advanced um, sensor uh, features that give you better raw images than you'd get otherwise. So there is nothing truly manual unless you get one of those cameras where you slide some film into it, put a, a hood over you and, and press the little shutter button and you have the, the magnesium burn to make the Wait, flash. That, that's how I take all my pictures. That You mean there's there's better <laughs> technology than that? <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I talked a few episodes ago about some videos by Alex Soth, and he's a photographer who uses that 8x10 view camera quite often. And so he'll have a light meter mm. and he'll adjust the lens and he'll look through the thing. And remember, it's upside down coming through on the frosted glass. So you're not really seeing the image the way it's supposed to be. And there's something to be said for that slow approach to photography. But at the same time, not everyone wants to carry this like 25-pound camera over their shoulders and worry about the film uh, sheets. I don't know what they're called, The you know, the film inside the glass that you slide in and out, and then yeah, the processing, yeah. and then the printing, and all of that, and that's quite complicated. So we're not trying to make the two extremes, like the, the 8x10 view camera on the one hand and the point-and-shoot camera, like an iPhone, on the other hand. Um, we want to talk about why you might want to do one, why you might want to do another, and why you should absolutely not be embarrassed to use automatic mode. I actually really like that you phrased it as photographic bullying because there really is so much of that in forums. And I've even encountered some of this in real life. You go to uh, you know, maybe some popular location and you know, I, I hate to sound stereotypical, but there's invariably going to be some 
dude who is, you know, like, oh, well, can't believe you would use that lens for this situation. And you're just like, come on, like, let people enjoy themselves. And I will freely say this because I honestly shoot manual almost all the time. And so, you know, I'm going to be sort of the, the, the poster child of saying, hey, you know what? You should shoot manual as much as you can. I'll have some reasons. But I'm also not uh, evangelical in that if you're using your auto or your P for program mode, then there's something, I don't know, less about your approach. I thought P was for professional mode. Yes, that's what I meant. P is for professional. <laughs> Actually, there are some professionals who use that. Martin Parr shoots in program mode. P for par mode, maybe? Par mode, and yes. in an interview, he said, manual snobs really get on my nose. I don't know the expression, get on my nose. <laughs> Basically, they've got to spend all their time thinking about the aperture. Why not take advantage of modern technology? Program mode pretty much gets it right every time. Now, it really depends on the type of photography you're doing. He's doing a sort of street photography. He's catching people. Um, he does some landscape work. He does some work where he takes more time. But his type of photography means that he doesn't have time to worry about changing things. Um, and so one of the interesting things I find is that once you understand how your camera's automatic mode works, you can set a bunch of limitations. So, for example, I use auto ISO in my camera. I have three auto ISO settings, um, low, medium, and high that I consider, one for during the day and one for, say, twilight, and another one when it's getting even darker. And each of them has a minimum shutter speed and a maximum ISO. So I'm guaranteeing that shutter speed won't go below about one one hundredth of a second. If I've got a lens with image stabilization, I can probably go a little bit lower, but I want to be safe for that sort of thing. Um, so the question is whether automatic is everything automatic or some things automatic. Mm, yeah, that that's a very good question. So let me ask you this, and I'm going to make an assumption because I think right now in your mind, you're picturing either a DSLR or something like, like the Fuji cameras that we use that have a lot of buttons and knobs and... Of course, that's probably what a lot of pros use. But pros also use this other camera that you may have heard of called the iPhone. Yep. And the As iPhone... As I said before, it's a point and shoot. The iPhone is is basically like everything is automatic to the extent where if you want to do some things, the auto modes, you're sort of fighting the camera because the camera wants to capture the best exposure and so maybe it will do that, but it's it's taking several shots and blending them together. And for example, if you wanted to do a long exposure shot, waterfalls is the obvious example, but maybe you just want something where you have maybe a, a shoreline and you want that, that water to be nice and smoothly blended. It's actually difficult to, to make a long exposure image on an iPhone because it's going against the iPhone's programming. It wants to shoot something fast and capture the action. And you have to turn to something else, like maybe a third-party app where you can say, I want an exposure that's one second or two second. And even then, it's sometimes difficult. 
But that's the advantage of an iPhone or any other smartphone that you can have apps that do things differently. Whereas on a, a real camera, you don't have that option. You're stuck with the limitations of the camera. But of course, you have far more possibilities. So the two main automatic modes, other than full automatic or program mode, are shutter priority and aperture priority. And in those, you're allowing the camera, you're allowing the brains of the computer that you have with a lens to decide um, if I'm in shutter priority, well, it will automatically decide the aperture and the ISO if you allow it to. There's no real ISO priority, uh, but as I said earlier, you can set auto ISO settings so it's neither too high nor too low according to what you want. But when you think that you've got four elements in the exposure square, right? You've got shutter speed, aperture, ISO, and what's the fourth? Was it exposure compensation? Exactly. Exposure compensation. Uh So you've got all four elements, four variables to consider when you're doing something. And if you can take one or two of them out, that means you're thinking less about your process and more about what you're trying to shoot. At the risk of jumping around too much, but this is going to be an episode where we jump around a bit. Let's. I kind of want to revisit the, the, the exposure compensation for a minute because let's say you're shooting in aperture priority, uh, which is something that you do a lot. I do occasionally. Yeah. And that's, that's how I do most of my photography. Yeah. And, and because I don't shoot anything where I need to think about the shutter speed generally. And the idea is what you want to control is the depth of field and make sure that that remains constant and then let the camera figure everything else out. But then if something gets brighter or darker, let's say you're outside in the garden and the clouds clear for a second, the camera will adjust to some extent, but you can also say this is too much and you use the exposure control to set that. Right. Now, one of the things that we mentioned in our previous episode was if you're shooting in manual, you don't want to have to be twiddling the knobs to make an adjustment for that sort of situation. And yet you're twiddling a knob to make an adjustment for just that situation. So how does exposure compensation differ from being in manual mode and you're adjusting the shutter speed to compensate? Okay, remember that a light meter in a camera is trying to balance itself at what's called 18% gray, Mm -hmm. right? So you're, you're a light meter... That's adjusting. So in the case that I'm doing aperture priority, the light meter is adjusting the shutter speed. That's the variable that the camera is taking care of. Right. And possibly the ISO, if I have auto ISO set on, these are trying to get to a certain level of white or gray. Um, Shoot photos in the snow and they're going to look murky unless you use the exposure compensation. You need to up by at least a stop if you're in the snow. It's not going to blow out the highlights, but if you don't, everything's going to be dark. Yes, if you shoot in raw, you can fix that in post. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. If you if you want to try and do it right, you want to use the exposure compensation. And you may find that your camera always underexposes or overexposes by a third of a stop or two-thirds of a stop. Um, it could depend on the camera. It could depend on the lighting conditions, et cetera. I've, I find that there are some days where it's overexposing and some it's underexposing. Um The thing about exposure compensation is that's like the fine tuning that fixes the bit that the camera can't fix, the 18% gray, the light meter part. Because if you're in any sort of priority shutter or aperture, the light meter is still going to vary in order to fix the aperture or the shutter according to that. 
So in some ways, the exposure compensation overrides what the camera is doing, but in a limited amount. I love that you're making my point here, because what you've well, just described is is basically... If, if, if I'm shooting an aperture priority and it looks too dark to me, changing the aperture won't make it lighter. No, but if you're shooting in manual, where your aperture is already set, changing the shutter speed will make it lighter. So you're basically doing the same thing. If you don't have thing. auto ISO, you have to have everything manual. If you have auto ISO, then the camera is still going to compensate. That's true. So you have to have everything in manual. Yes. So here's one of the things. Um, On a Fuji camera and on most cameras, the shutter speed is in a dial on top. Um, Some cameras have ISO on top, which is the case with the X-T3. I'm looking at my X-T4. It doesn't have the ISO there. The aperture is on the lens, which I think is the perfect place for the aperture because it affects the lens. Um, and it makes more sense to me conceptually that I'm turning something on the lens to make the lens change. That's actually one reason why I like shooting with Fuji cameras, but on a lot of other cameras, DSLRs and such, it'll be a dial, say, on the back or the front. So it's... it's evil. (laughs) It's definitely a change. With film experience, I look to have it on the lens. That's the place that makes sense for me. Yeah, yeah, Um, I agree. But no, no matter what, you... You basically want to use one dial and one aperture ring on a lens. Like, you don't want to have to do three things with the hand that's holding the camera, right? So I'm I'm saying I'm holding the camera with my right hand, holding the lens with my left hand. You don't want to be doing three things with the right hand, even though the way the the Fuji cameras are set up, the shutter speed and exposure compensation are right next to each other. Yeah. If you have a tripod, if you're taking your time, by all means go into manual. That That's the ideal situation. But otherwise, you just end up fumbling things. And it just – too many opportunities for error when you do that. I – Jeff is shaking his I head. Disagree. He agree. <laughs> He's just Mr. Manual. I shoot handheld plenty of times in manual and – Part of that is because on my camera, I have it set up so that the front dial, there's a dial that I can use with my index finger that's just below the shutter. And that lets me do sort of smaller increments in the shutter speed. So I can go, let's say I'm at 1 60th per second. I can move that down to 1 50th per second, which is a finer adjustment than, say, moving the preset knob marks. And so... I'm basically doing the exposure compensation, but I'm doing it with the shutter speed instead of messing about with one-third stop, two-third stop, full stops with the exposure compensation. So I would argue that in practice, we're doing the same thing. It's just... It's just that mine is better. (laughs) It's just just that mine is better. Um, Let me ask you a question. If you want your shutter speed to be, let's say, particularly fast, Mm -hmm. then you're changing your aperture in order to make... No, he shakes his head no. Then you're changing your aperture in order to get the right exposure. But what if you want your aperture to be at a particular opening um, and you can't change both as easily as that? When one of us is shooting in aperture mode, we're doing that because we want that specific depth of field. I see aperture more in terms of focus than in terms of, of light collection. Well, you say focus as depth of field, but I see your point. I like to have a smaller aperture because focusing is easier, right? Uh, you're, as yeah. you say, your depth of field, what's in focus, you have a, a greater depth of what's in focus. But again, what if you want a specific depth of field, specific aperture, Yes, but you need a fast shutter speed or a slow shutter speed? 
Then the, you have to mess with the ISO, and that's the generally the least accessible tool. Possibly, but then you're you're still only adjusting one thing, right? So I'm shooting. I have a, an aperture of say f4, right? And I also want to make sure that I'm capturing enough action. So I set a shutter speed of say one one twenty fifths of a second or maybe even higher. And that's going to make things darker. Well, then I have those two variables uh, worked out. Then I can just adjust the ISO a little bit as needed or set an ISO range where I can say, all right, uh, go up to ISO 1600, but I don't want it to go any beyond that. So you're using auto ISO and it's not manual. Boom. That is one possibility. (laughs) So... (laughs) My my point is we've got the four variables here. And if you're doing all of them manually, drop out the exposure compensation. If you're yeah. doing all three of them manually, then you've got to think about three different things. You think, what aperture do I want? Okay, what shutter speed will get this photo exposed right? And then what ISO will do this? And, and you have less latitude with the ISO, right, um, in, in terms of the ISO dial than you do with the, like the shutter speed and the aperture. Yeah, but... So then you can use exposure compensation to get it just exactly right. Eh, no, you can use the shutter speed to get it just exactly right. Well, let me just go a step further. Are you using manual focus? No, I don't use manual focus. QED. Oh. It's not manual. Okay, so we're including <laughs> fo- manual focus. Well, of course. That's completely separate. We're talking about Why? exposure here. Why? It, it's it's one of the it's one of the most powerful things that cameras today do is is focus automatic. Focus. It is. It is face recognition, continuous focus. Um, it's an incredibly powerful tool, and it's wonderful. And I I rely on it all the time. However, my argument is not that I have to be a sort of weird photographic luddite and say I'm not going to use any of the automatic uh, features of the camera just on principle alone. Like I will absolutely use autofocus and especially when I'm shooting people, the the eye tracking autofocus, like honestly, it, it still feels like magic when I'm when I'm shooting people with something like that. But in terms of the exposure, I'm usually just adjusting one of those things. Even if I have, say, my ISO fixed uh, let's say I know I'm going to be in, in a sort of dimly lit, maybe a cloudy day, and I'll just put ISO at 400 or 800, where I know that I'm going to get some extra light from that. And then I just adjust my shutter speed to compensate kind of within that range. I think my point is that there are a lot of variables. And between full manual and full automatic, there are a lot of places to go. I, I actually like manual focusing sometimes. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing macro photography, I generally always do manual focusing. Yeah. I'll do the thing where I press and hold and then turn the focus ring um, to refine the focus. What's that called? Manual, auto manual focus or something? Something focus like that, assist. Yeah. They've got something like that. What I really like on the Fuji cameras is when you do that, once you start engaging the focus ring, it zooms in. So you can get really close and you can find the precise focus point. Um, I, I can't remember the last time I have not used an automatic shutter speed because 
What does it matter? I'm, I'm not shooting cars or, or I mean, even the cat, when I take cat photos, generally if they're moving, I can't catch them anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I don't really shoot things that move fast, so it doesn't matter. I'd rather have that, um, that flexibility of the ISO and the shutter speed working together. When we planned for this episode some time ago, I went out and I did some full automatic shooting. Um, it was interesting because I had this habit of thinking aperture, got to think of the aperture, got to turn the aperture ring, set it to F8 to start with, adjust. And I was freed from that. And I could just take pictures without thinking of anything. And sometimes that's what you want. I'm curious, when it was doing that, was the camera just trying to use the lowest possible aperture in order to get the most light? I mean, what what interests me about automatic modes, and I don't think any camera does this yet, and maybe we'll move into this as uh, you know processors improve and more of the uh, you know machine learning and stuff finally makes its way to to traditional cameras. I would love to have some capability where the camera would look at a scene and say, this looks like a landscape. So I'm going to use a higher aperture value so I can get a longer depth of field. So this is a shot that should be F8, even though that's going to reduce the amount of light coming in. Or maybe it would see that you're shooting a portrait of somebody and say, ah, well, perhaps this should be f2.8 so we can get a little more depth of field behind the person. And I don't think any of that's happening now. I think we're pretty far away from that. Maybe on an iPhone where they've got enough R&D money to invest in that sort of research. Yeah. Um, And also they know that they've got control of the lenses. They On cameras with interchangeable lenses, you could have all sorts of different lenses that are going to affect things differently. That's a good point. Um, well, one thing I want to point out is that, and I'm sure most cameras have a thing like this, um, on Fuji cameras, if you're in full P mode, um, you can use the front command dial to do what's called program shift. And as you move the dial, it shifts through combinations of shutter speed and aperture. So... You turn it one bit and the shutter speed goes up and the aperture opens. You turn it the other way, the shutter speed goes down and the aperture closes, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And while it's still program mode or automatic mode, you're still able to make that adjustment that you want for either shutter speed or aperture. Ah, that's handy. Yeah. And of course, you can still mess with the exposure compensation if you want. (laughs) Because again, don't forget 18% gray. If you're shooting in the snow, if you're shooting on the beach with the sand, um, it's going to be too murky. So you need to adjust for that. You're right. You need to uh, lower your shutter speed. (laughs) But only if you're in full manual. Again, that's the thing. That's the thing. That is the thing. I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. Uh, yes. Well, actually, I think we agree, and that there are just some areas. And again, and th- this comes up a lot in our discussions. It really depends on what you're shooting and how you shoot, because there are some people who they want to have more control, or maybe they're in a situation where they need more control. And then there are others who are like, okay, I'm here at my location. I don't want to have to think about all this. And I know the camera is going to do a good job of giving me what I want and accurately capturing this scene. So I'm just going to focus on composition and light and shadow 
and you know just sort of surrender to the knowledge that your camera's going to do a good job unless it's in a really challenging circumstance and just move from there. I think what's important is to know that we have a lot of tools in the toolbox here. Yeah. Um, whether it's full automatic, shutter priority, aperture priority, full manual, whether or not use exposure compensation, whether or not use auto ISO, read the manual. <laughs> read the manual. And also, I think even more important, uh, go out and try all these things. Yes. Because yeah. you're not going to lose anything except maybe a little bit of time if you go somewhere and say, all right, I've, I, I've shot all this in auto mode and I like what I got. Now I'm going to switch to uh, you know, shutter priority and then I'm going to switch to aperture priority. You're not going to lose anything. You're only going to gain the experience. And honestly, a lot of this is just having the experience so that you can then go to a situation and say, ah, okay, I'm going to shoot this family portrait. And I could tell because it's cloudy, I want to increase my ISO and I want to make sure that my shutter speed is one one sixtieth or higher because there's a kid who's going to be moving or whatever. Or I just want to have a, a very set F1.8 uh, aperture and let the camera take care of it. But having that experience, you start to be able to go to a situation and have a rough idea of what settings you're going to want to do. Just like in the old days when you had people shooting film, uh, doing street photography, you know, F8 and B there, right? Yep. We didn't get into white balance. That's another variable. Yeah. <laughs> white balance. Well, <laughs> white balance. If is you shoot raw, you can fix it in post. <laughs> Right? That's exactly it. White balance is a little more slippery because it's much easier to edit. Yeah. If you shoot in raw. Yeah. You still you, you have can some... make adjustments to white balance in JPEGs, but they're not going to be as precise. Exactly. Yeah. You don't have as much latitude. General advice for that is if you are going to be shooting like a wide range of things and you just want to maintain a consistent white balance, whether that's you know set to daylight or or whatever, then set a manual white balance. And that way, when you go back and edit it, you're not having to change every single one. You can just change them all as a group. Whereas with auto white balance, sometimes you end up with that the variability because of shadows and shade. And then you're just spending more time trying to set everything to a certain ISO level. It all boils down to go out, shoot, experiment with this stuff, and over time, it does get easier. And I will say it is also perfectly okay to go full auto. And it's perfectly okay to be obsessive and go full manual. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. It doesn't sound like you're agreeing with me, but you are agreeing with me. Nah, so, but see, I'm what, take what's interesting is I have experience with film and you don't. And so for that reason, manual to me is like, well, I've got this expensive camera. Let it do its stuff. It's kind of like people with vinyl records. I grew up with them and I hate the noise. And all you hipsters think vinyl is so cool. <laughs> um, yes, I have uh, vinyl siding. Is that the same thing? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that brings up one last point that I wanted to make, a little short point. Part of this discussion is also the mirrorless versus DSLR experience. Because with the mirrorless, which you know we 
go on and on about how superior mirrorless cameras are. But part of the experience is what you're seeing in the viewfinder or on the back screen, that's what the sensor is seeing. And so you can absolutely look right through and say, okay, I obviously need to increase my shutter speed because the scene is too bright, or I need to adjust the exposure compensation. When you're looking through the viewfinder of a DSLR, you're just looking at what's in front of the lens without any of that that compensation. And so actually, I think part of the reason why I shoot manual is because I had to figure out what settings I would end up with because you would look through, you would frame your shot, you take a picture, and then you look and see, oh, is the exposure right with what's actually recorded to the sensor? And so that's more akin to the old days of shooting film where you were just looking at what was in front of you and then you see what you end up with. Well, I remember when I was shooting film, um, there was a light meter in the camera and there was a little needle um, that went up and down on the side of the the, the viewfinder and you would, there'd be a little range from, from the overexposed to underexposed. But there are times when you know you want it overexposed and you adjust for that. So if it's, a, if it's at the middle, that 18% gray, and you're shooting snow or sand on a beach, you're going to up it a little bit because you've learned after ruining film that it doesn't quite work like that. So there is that kind of – either way, there's an awareness. I mean the difference with a DSLR is you can chimp. And in fact, that's why people with DSLRs chimp so much, isn't it? Because they can't see what they're shooting and then they want to check to see if they got it right. Partly. Um, We don't have to do that with mirrorless cameras because we're seeing what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Read the manual. Go out and try things. You're not going to burn through rolls of film. doesn't cost anything. And if you're in our Facebook group and have any comments, I'd love to hear from different people who shoot one way or another. Do, do any of you shoot full automatic? Are any of you full manual mavens? Good heavens. Are we going to end up with a Team Jeff and Team Kirk rivalry going on? <laughs> Let's Excellent. Let's t-shirts. <laughs> How about some snapshots? Should we do some snapshots? Good idea. Okay. What have you got this week, Jeff? As I mentioned in a few episodes, I've been doing a little bit of video work and – I've discovered about myself that in some situations, I like to have a script to work from. If I'm sort of talking about something at length, I can certainly say it and do it off the top of my head, but my hit rate, I guess you could say, is not that great. I sometimes tend to stumble. If you've listened to the first episodes of this podcast, you'll know that for sure. So I went ahead. Well, we edit this podcast, so we cut out the stumbles, but we both stumble. It's normal. That's right. I'm sorry. I have been absolutely perfect from the very beginning. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I decided to invest in a teleprompter. Now, there are teleprompters that are thousands of dollars. This is absolutely not it. Uh, What I got is the Glidegear TMP100, and basically... It's something that you set on top of a tripod and it has a piece of glass that's angled and you put the camera behind it and shoot through the glass and you put an iPad in a little tray in front of it. And then using software on the iPad, you can basically write your script, load it on there. The software flips the image so that as you're looking at the glass, the text runs in the correct direction. And so what happens is you're 
looking at the camera and just reading the words in front of it. And because of the, the angle of the reflection, that doesn't get recorded on the camera. Now, this is not a cheap option. Uh, it's $200 here in the U.S. But when I was doing some research, you can absolutely spend less. But a lot of the things looked really flimsy or plastic. I remember one of the ones that I was looking at, uh, there was a, a YouTube video about it. And the person was like, oh, it's super convenient. And he was like struggling, trying to get some of the plastic pieces to fit together. <laughs> like, oh, it's, it's, it's really super easy. Urgh! It was also a thing where I wanted it to give it a try, see if it would actually be helpful for me. And it has been. I think I've saved myself a lot of time doing some pre-recorded stuff. So uh, it's a Glide Gear TMP100, and uh, it's about $200. That's really clever. I've been looking at a couple of videos about this. Um, when you said a teleprompter, I was going to say, well, why didn't you just get an iPad? But what this allows you to do is have the camera close enough so it looks like you're looking into the camera. Exactly, because you literally are looking directly into the lens because that's where, where the text goes. Um, I, I have tried right. – I set up my iPad below the camera at one point, and unless you have a lot more distance between you and the camera, you still have that sense of your eyes are not looking in the camera. You're looking below the camera or to the edge, and it just kind of ruins the effect. So, Kirk, what do you have this week? Um, I have a book. It's called Spring Cannot Be Canceled. It's by David Hockney um, with Martin Gayford. Martin Gayford apparently is someone who writes about art and who's a friend of David Hockney's. Um, if you know David Hockney, he's a, a British painter, artist. He's around 80 years old. Um, back in 2011, he did something uh, called The Arrival of Spring in Yorkshire, where he spent a lot of time making paintings in Yorkshire in spring of that year and sort of documenting um, that period. And he decided to do the same thing in 2020 in Normandy. Now, what you need to know is that David Hockney um, makes a great deal of paintings now on an iPad. Oh. And all of the paintings in here are done on an iPad. Apparently he uses an app called Brushes, which gives him all sorts of different types of brush textures. And... What he did is um, back in 2011, he had already been doing iPhone paintings. Um, and when the first iPad came out, he went to that. And um, I saw some of his uh, iPad work on exhibit um, in Yorkshire when I was living up in York back in 2013. It's really fascinating. Um, so here he wanted to go to Normandy and he went with his assistant and they found this house. And he said, we're going to buy this house. And we're going to spend – don't you love it? People just travel and say, I let's buy this house like that. Um, and so he wanted to spend the spring. And little did he know that there would be a global pandemic and that he wouldn't be able to leave. And he would be stuck in this area um, where he had a, a country house with four acres of land around, trees, a little stream, um, flowers and all that. And he explains in the book, so the book is written by this person named Martin Gayford, but there are, I don't know, 100 or 200 um, excerpts from emails from David Hockney. He explains how it was almost creative um, impetus to be stuck there and not having to go out, not being able to go out. And they did have occasional visits, but um, he just had this little area where he would go outside and paint the trees and paint the flowers and paint the um, the lawn and stuff like that. Um, the the paintings themselves are I, – I, there's something about this style of painting. I'm going to show Jeff one of these paintings here. Hmm. There's a naivete in them. They're, they're relatively simple. They're saturated colors. 
Um, but it's it's a particular David Hockney style. If you've seen any of his work, he is very colorful. Um, uh, what I found interesting in the book is a lot of his reflections about making these paintings, about composition, about catching moments, about the way he sees things and about being in this kind of environment where he would see things day to day. Like he painted one of these cherry trees like 50 times, you know, 50 days in a row. Um, there's an exhibit in London with 120 of these. There's also an exhibit catalog, which I have, um, which is really fascinating. I'll put a link in the show notes for both of these. So it's Spring Cannot Be Cancelled, David Hockney in Normandy. Lovely. Well, everybody, enjoy your own spring and let us see what you've been working on. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.